0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. This month, Roxbury Community College has a lot to feel good about as homecoming celebration takes hold of the school. Saturday May 13th, the block was lit as Roxbury Community College closed out its three-day homecoming celebration with the community block party. The public was invited to a day of fun, food, games, and more from 12 to 6 p.m. as RCC honored its 50th anniversary and legacy as Boston's only predominantly black institution.
1: You know, this homecoming is, of course, special because of the celebration of 50 years of this institution serving the greater Boston area, but especially the communities of Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. It's a homecoming, we believe, not just for alumni uh, who we are inviting to come back and reminisce and uh, reconnect and uh, find ways to
2: really uh, continue to be a part of this family, uh, but also a homecoming we think for the community. We haven't been able to have folks on campus for a little while because of the COVID pandemic and we want people to recognize this is a resource and it's really the hub of the Roxbury community and we just want people to have an opportunity to be on campus, connect with other neighbors, um, visit our enrollment table because we want folks to apply um, and just hoping people have a phenomenal experience on campus today.
0: For Hakika Greaves, student speaker of this year's 157 RCC May graduates, it was the perfect time to let her hair down and share her gratitude.
2: I'm so grateful for everything that they've done for me and support me throughout my journey as a student and as a mother while pregnant. That made me a stronger person throughout my pregnancy and helped me to push even further to reach my career goals. And I was just so focused on finishing school and also being there for the students at RCC because they've been there for me. I think people don't understand the importance of having an institution like a Roxbury Community College People fought in 1971, two, three, to have this building built, established, and to have a community college for uh, the residents of Roxbury. And it was very important to have something here. And because of it, it has actually helped uh, launch the careers of a lot of individuals who started off at Roxbury Community College and then moved on into uh, different um, academic and also professional spaces. So um, it's, 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 it's a pillar and it's a foundational part of the community of having Roxbury Community
0: College. On the grounds, there were activities for all ages, from face painting to virtual reality for the youth and an eye-catching vendor market of black-owned businesses. And inside the Media Arts Centre, a robust program showcasing the vibrancy of black culture, starting with a little bit of fashion, followed by the step show by Origination Cultural Arts Centre. But the night belonged to hip-hop, as guests enjoyed the coinciding 50 years of hip-hop concert with live performances from Boston's most revered talents. Roxbury native and internationally known hip-hop artist Edo G. brought down the house as only a returning son could, and he had plenty of love for RCC.
2: So, and it's always great to perform, you know, at home. I mean, we usually perform out of town. We're not here, so to perform in Roxbury, 50 years of hip-hop, 50 years of RCC, it's amazing. I think it's um, it's just a great resource for, you know, young kids who want to have uh, further their college. It's a great place to start. It's a great place to start and get a finish or to get a start to, to springboard you if you want to complete more uh, Schooling—it's just a nice resource to have in a community um, right here in Roxbury. I like to believe that um, it, you know our ancestors are looking down and feeling very, very pleased because people had a vision that this was a college for the community, by the community, and that it would be owned by the community. And we're hoping that uh, that legacy and that vision is being lived today. So I'm hoping that uh, I think they're feeling good about what they're seeing here on this campus today.
0: Last week, young minds and academic brains met in Chelsea to promote research and gain perspective on the wide range of data that can be used to help our communities. Last Thursday, students and academics alike congregated at Chelsea High School. to share interesting research findings on a variety of topics. From COVID-19 smell loss, to sociological studies on the use of racial slurs, and even a theory on neurological disorders. Keynote speaker Patrice C. Williams kicked off the festival with words to inspire scientific minds, and she emphasized the need for ethical practices when conducting studies on communities.
2: It's very important because a lot, it's particularly my field, my field's in urban and regional planning. And so we have a long history of causing a lot of harm and communities for a lot of time because we're considered the experts and we have this patriarchal perspective of we know what's best for you. And so including people that are most impacted by our decision-making as a part of it, allows our work to be more impactful. A lot of things we're coining new terms, new names, but it's the same repetitive outcomes. Why aren't we including the people who are going where our decision-making is going to impact their livelihood? They need to be a part of the conversation, so we're making sure that we're thinking about all the different ways something could impact.
0: Academic researchers from Mass General Hospital and Harvard Kennedy School Shared their recent research and told us why studying these communities is so important. I think, also as researchers, you know, we always want to be able to give back and share our findings with communities, and those opportunities are are hard to um, make happen
3: a lot a lot of the time. And so, to have an event where we can uh, convene with other researchers
2: and uh, and share these results with community members, and especially with young people, um, I think it's just it's it's awesome. The Chelsea community has done an extraordinary job at just connecting researchers with the community and getting community feedback. Um, And I think that's very important because there's no there's no reason we should be even doing these studies if we're not going to talk to the people that they're supposed to benefit.
0: Alyssa M. Alejandro Soto and Sasha Makia are clinical research assistants at Mass General Hospital and their recent study on smell loss from COVID-19 reveal fascinating findings.
2: Smell is a very subjective, your your perception of your own sense of smell is very subjective. And there's, like, you can't really know if you're smelling something the right way um, because you don't have anything to compare it to. So here you can see that 43% of COVID-positive patients thought they had normal smell. But then when you go to our results, you see a very significant difference between how COVID-negative patients performed versus COVID-positive patients performed on
0: our test. High school student Nia Freeman and her research group studied racial slurs within and against the Black community, specifically the use of the N-word. She shared their results and her hopes for the next generation of scientists.
2: Two of the main ideas were you can't control others and like it's not that big of a deal. I hope that people will be more open and less ignorant to things like this and I hope to educate me and my peers, I hope that we educate and we make a change with the use of the word and how people view us and our history.
0: One middle school group was thrilled to share their study Zinc Deficiency as a Risk Factor for Autism Spectrum Disorder and their passion for research was palpable.
1: Overall, what we found was uh, titanium dioxide is in uh, a lot of things that affect uh, the mTOR. I mean, titanium dioxide affects the mTOR, but things that have titanium dioxide are things like birth control and baby formula. That's why we started to look at them. And basically, this whole thing was to find how mTOR helps the signal, but since the titanium dioxide messes up with the mTOR, the signal doesn't go through. That's why people with autism, they don't fully comprehend things like we do. Uh, I like research because I like learning, and I like like you know having a lot of knowledge about stuff. Even though like it is kind of nerve-wracking, I get to present in front of so many people and show the world my work.
0: Of the 34 presentations on display, 11 of them came directly from Chelsea students who held their ground side by side with established researchers. With young bright minds like these, we're in good hands. Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month has nearly come to a close, but that's not stopping Boston Teachers Union from spreading AAPI culture through books. For a child, seeing oneself represented on the page can open up the world. It was an abundance of literary riches last Saturday morning as the Boston Teachers Union provided over 1,000 books written by AAPI authors, uplifting AAPI culture and characters.
1: For a lot of Asian American students, I think they don't oftentimes see themselves in books or in TV characters and only more recently in movies. And so when we're trying to ensure that students have culturally relevant curriculum, meaning that they have books and stories and themes that they're familiar with or that resonate with them, then it's really important to have visibility in in books as well for AAPI characters and having more AAPI authors write those stories that can be culturally relevant.
0: For many parents present at BTU Hall that day, having such a wide selection of AAPI stories available to their children was an encouraging change from their own youth.
2: When I grew up, there was one book in the library that represented Asian Americans. That was The Five Chinese Brothers, a book from 1933. And I remember just about every week going to pick up that book because it had the characters that looked like me, that represented my culture. And now to see my children, I've got four at BPS schools. Uh, their faces are represented in books all around this room.
0: The first book I remember reading with an Asian character is called So Far From the Bamboo Grove. I loved it because the character looked like me. Um, and I so I think it's important that kids see themselves in the books because when they see people who look like them, they're more interested in reading it, and the more that they read, they become better readers for it. Tracy Guan, BTU educator and local author of Love Is Mama's Hands, understands the power of
1: incorporating the details of daily Asian life in her work. Both of my books talk a lot about food, so in many Asian American, Asian American cultures um, food is one of the biggest things in which um, parents and caregivers are able to show, you know, their, their love and their affection. Um, and so when they, see the, when they see the foods that they're familiar with, um, when they see all the different aspects of, you know, things that they grew up with, Um, It's very very important um, because they get to see what's reflected in their everyday lives.
0: Seeing one's culture in books draws in children, not only fostering an interest in reading, but validating their existence, affirming they have every right to take up space in this world.
2: Growing up, uh, I didn't see a
1: lot of uh, Asian faces in literature, and for me, it impacted how I viewed the world. And for me, that was very important in my identity formation. And so it wasn't until college where I saw more literature that represented my faces and Asian spaces. And I think that's important uh, in order for you know, young Asians to recognize that they do belong in this country and that having and seeing themselves in literature is really uh, a, a stepping stone for them to kind of view them as being
2: uh, someone that belongs in this country.
0: Every child deserves the right to a great education and that starts by igniting a passion for reading. With Saturday's offering of culturally relevant books, these families are off to a great start. No fault evictions are plaguing Boston residents, pushing out our most vulnerable members of the community. See how City Life Vita Urbana is supporting one senior fighting to keep his home. Juan Diaz is a senior healthcare worker who's being forced to fight a no-fault eviction housing court to resist being displaced from his home, one that he's lived in for over 30 years.
1: The abuse is horrendous of millionaires that keep continuing to buy up property, buying up buildings, raising the rent for no reason, evicting families that have nowhere to go. This is an abuse that we have to stop, and you know, the millionaires keep getting rich and we keep suffering. So we're going to continue to fight back against this.
0: Before the sudden eviction, Juan complained a number of times about the substandard conditions of his apartment. Whenever issues were fixed, rent would increase, making it unaffordable for him and others. Juan will try to negotiate a lease renewal to give him more time to find a new home, as rental prices in Boston are out of the financial reach for senior workers like Juan. Right now, the housing market is completely haywire. And what we see in the housing market is the escalation of maximum profit over human need. And that's what's happening here on Hyde Park with Juan Diaz. And it's what's happening all over the city and all over the metropolitan area and beyond. You know, we see building clearouts because a landlord bought a building with the intention of a business plan that would result in everybody being evicted.
1: This tenant, Mr. Diaz, has lived in his apartment for 34 years, has built his community here in Boston, And he's being asked to leave nonetheless, despite a perfect record as a tenant. This is something the landlord cares, pays no mind to, is just wanting to push him out, raise the rent, paying attention to the money and not the person.
0: City Life Vita Urbana, homeowners and tenant allies gathered in front of the Eastern Housing Unit in downtown Boston to protest unfair evictions and stand in solidarity with Juan. What is the fabric of our society if we don't have community, if we don't have a sense of
3: neighborhood uh, activities and and people are getting displaced? It's unfair. Rents are very high and people are getting displaced and many
0: of them, they are facing the streets. Boston is taking a stand against anti-LGBTQ legislation by launching a new program to support students and create accepting school communities. On Sunday, Mayor Michelle Wu and the Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Advancement officially launched its newest initiative to protect and support young queer people in Boston, Amplify GSA.
1: We need the contributions of every single person who is ready to, to step up and, and give. And what we have seen over the course of history is systematic exclusions and marginalization and um, displacement ends up hurting all of us because we are shutting out sometimes the most brilliant uh, talents and, and um, leadership that we really all desperately need at this moment.
0: GSA is a student-run school group that unites LGBTQ students with their allies to build community within their school. Previously, GSA was an acronym for Gay-Straight Alliance, but it's now more inclusive and is known as Gender and Sexuality Alliance.
2: I believe that diversity makes us more beautiful, stronger, more well connected and more able to face the challenges that come. And so when people divide based on sexuality, gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion, um, it hurts us all. And so we want to be able to uplift LGBTQ youth and their allies to be able to build a better society for everyone.
0: The program was created to learn more about what LGBTQ students need to feel more supported in their schools. Amplify GSA is focused on building connections throughout BPS schools by engaging with queer youth and their allies, teachers, school administrators and families.
2: We believe that it's our responsibility to build a city that is safe for our trans youth, our gay youth, youth that have different sexual orientations and that ensure that they're safe at school, they're safe outside in the mall when they're uh, enjoying you know, their friendships and their family members. And, and we just think that it's important for us to celebrate this moment um, as a city that is for everyone.
0: Since the start of 2023, there have been over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced throughout the United States. Although Boston is a blue state, the threat of homophobia and transphobia spreads far and wide.
2: I think most people would agree that mutual respect and appreciation and acceptance are some foundational tenets of our society. However, we don't always do that in practice when it comes to our personal beliefs. And so I think it's important for people to understand that folks in the LGBTQ community just want to be respected and included just like everybody else Um, and that regardless of personal beliefs or feelings that we should all be um, able to participate fully in society and in the city of boston
0: the mayor's office is determined to continue this dialogue with queer youth and assure them that lgbtq people are protected and supported in our city
2: as the quote goes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think that's why it's important for everybody to feel included in absolutely everything. And the not necessarily dismantling of labels. I think labels are important, but I think it's important to be inclusive of every single label. And I will say in a time that we exist, in a time where books are being banned, or humans are being banned, that it's imperative that we all literally band together um, to kind of eradicate some of those oppressions some of those systems of oppressions that exist. I think we do that for one person, then we do it for every person, and we build a better future for ourselves.
0: We move next to BNN News Breakdown. The U.S. federal government hit its debt ceiling of $31.16 trillion in January, the maximum amount of money that can be borrowed from the Treasury. Currently, there's debate between Congress and the White House as to how the government should handle the debt, in hopes of not going into default on June 1st. Going into default means that the government wouldn't be able to pay back the U.S. Treasury, and therefore, federal bond interest rates would rise, as would all other interest rates If the government can't come to an agreement and raise the debt ceiling, it could mean an economic disaster or possible recession. But is it as dire as major news networks and politicians claim? Not necessarily. The government could raise the debt ceiling to a point that we could never reach. Another option is President Biden invoking the 14th Amendment to eliminate the debt ceiling altogether. This would prevent a default from happening. BNN reached out to a city spokesperson and received the following statement. The city of Boston is carefully monitoring the situation and the potential steps the federal government will take in the event of a default to understand the impact to our local government and to our residents. Next Friday, Arlequin Players Theatre debuts The Gaga, a darkly funny new play taking audiences on a fantastical trip through the consequences of war in Harvard Square. Enjoy our interview with actress Tia Fedorenko and managing producer, Sarah Stackhouse.
3: Arlequin is uh, a theater of immigrants. It's based in Needham, Massachusetts. Um, And it was actually founded by Igor Goliak, who came to the U.S. as a Jewish immigrant when he was 11. And he came from Kiev, Ukraine. And so um, the Bagaga, which we're doing, is a play that has been written since the war started in Ukraine. And it's very personal to Igor and also to the whole Arlequin players community. Um, Arlequin was working for many, many years doing pretty extraordinary artistic work but it was in Russian. So the audiences in Boston who know Arlequin, for the most part, are Russian-speaking. Over the last five years, they've kind of exploded off the charts because um, Igor created some virtual theater pieces Hmm. um, out of his living room, like shoved the couch to the side, put the dog in the bedroom, put the baby to bed, and made a virtual theater piece where he hacked together all kinds of technology, and then made a trial and the audience was a jury. And it was this very intimate experience very early in the pandemic, like May 2020. And so uh, the New York Times came and gave it a critics pick and people started watching from all over the world and that kind of opened a lot of doors. And so for the past three years, we've been doing virtual theater pieces with audiences everywhere. And we did a big off-Broadway project last year with Mikhail Baryshnikov and Jessica Hecht, which was The Orchard, a Russian play about the past and the future and loss, and the, and the war broke out in Ukraine while we were rehearsing, mm. and so that kind of undid everybody, and we decided right then that Igor wanted to bring Sasha Denisova here, uh, incredible documentary playwright from Ukraine, is living as a refugee in Poland, and bring her here to create the Gaga with our company. So that's what we're doing now.
0: And the Gaga makes its U.S. premiere Friday, June 2nd at Harvard Square's Beat Brew Hall. What exactly <laughs> is the story of the Gaga? And can you speak on the process of how playwright and director, um,
3: director Sasha Denisova developed the piece? Sasha is a Golden Mask winner in Russia. It's like the Tonys of Russia. She's very famous, um, but her mother's in Kiev. And so in the early days of the war, she fled Moscow and she went to Poland and she's written like prolifically since then. She's been interviewing refugees. She's been interviewing um, officials and collecting documents from the news. From So this piece is based all on documentary real words that came from people and characters who are alive now. Um, and what she says is that for her, the only thing that's giving her hope right now is the, the thought of justice happening and the way she's expressed it in this play is to have a Ukrainian girl who conjures a trial of Putin, this fantastical trial of Putin, mm-hmm. and in from a bomb shelter in Ukraine, and then tries Putin, and the girl is the judge. And so this is the piece that's, that Sasha wrote for 18 actors. And she wrote it. She's here now. And she's been working with Taya, who plays the girl and um, we set it in this bomb shelter, restaurant turned into bomb shelter in the center of Harvard Square.
0: Wow, that's a very, very big task. And Taya, as mentioned, you play the girl, um, and it's more than just a play for you. You actually have a very personal connection as well to the war. Uh, What has been your experience stepping into playing the girl and navigating your real life here as a refugee?
1: Um, It has been truly amazing to work with Sasha, because um, you don't find uh, Ukrainian artists often where I live, in New York, for example. And it was truly amazing to actually get her perspective because I left right before the war started and my whole family, like my parents are still in Kiev, and my sisters are in Poland. And the girl, the character is from Mariupol, which is in the east of Ukraine, and it is currently occupied by Russian military. And uh, it, was, it was incredible to do the research about what it would be like to be the person who is trapped in this apartment, in this situation, because um, the whole play wants to bring into attention the fact that children are being illegally deported from Ukraine and forcibly adopted into Russia into Russian families mm-hmm. and they're taken away from their parents and their families and the girl is one of those people and i feel like it's a very important message for you know people in america and all over the world and I also love the idea of it being shown online Mm -hmm. because my parents will be able to see it because from Ukraine it's a time difference, Mm -hmm. but still it's a very great opportunity for them.
0: I'm sure they must be very proud of you. Um, And you're a young actress. You are working with a very large cast, as mentioned. (laughs) Yes, Um, 18. 18, (laughs) in fact. Uh, what, What was it like? What's been most challenging working with so many people on this show?
1: think it's a little challenging to keep up with them because everyone is very experienced. They're professionals and they're truly amazing and I learned so much from them and I'm trying to keep up with their professionalism and I want to be as good as I can be, but of course I need guidance and uh, a lot of the actors have been helping me because theater is a new thing for me. This is my first ever big project with Arlequin Players, and I'm—I learn from them every day. And the most challenging thing is truly to just, you know, show my best, even though I know that I'm, I still have so much to learn.
0: And unique about this production is its immersive, site-specific staging. Yes. <laughs> the design team actually converted a restaurant into a makeshift bomb shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, why was it important for you to uh, forgo the traditional proscenium theater?
3: I think Igor and I had a night when we received Sasha's script, because we were supposed to be in a traditional theater. We actually had one booked. Hmm. And we got the script, I mean, we had seen the script, but we got the final version of the script translated. And we were like, this is a world-class piece. Like this should be on the best stages in, I mean, this is extraordinary. And we need to do service, do it service. And what would elevate it and really make it um, special um, and we started talking about like if we could be in a space like Harvard Square, where it's just a huge thoroughfare. Where if there were, God forbid, you know, a war or bombings happening, where would we go? Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful big restaurant. It used to be the Beat Brew Hall. Um, Trinity Properties um, oh. owns it in Harvard Square, and they're a great friend to the arts. And they have um, I've produced with them before in some of their storefronts. And so I reached out to Harvard Square Business Association and said. We want a space that we can turn into a bomb shelter that will feel like people are immersing themselves in it. They're having the experience of what it would be like to go in there um, and really just be completely uh, surrounded by this world.
0: And what do you hope that people take away from the Gaga? You
1: wanna... I really hope that because I know that it's difficult to understand something that is not like affecting you personally and Of course, there are wars going on every day in like the world. And I feel like this is an opportunity for me, for like Ukrainians in general, to show the world what it is truly like. Like the immersive experience really helps you to understand what it's like to be in a bomb shelter if you've never been to one. Um, What it's like to feel kind of trapped with like a certain amount of people and to feel close to the actors and to the audience and have this connection and I think it's a way to say that we're not giving up, that it's our way to fight and there are people, like my dad is in the military, he's fighting, you know, physically we're fighting in the artistic world and I think it's important to, you know, go everywhere and show everyone what it's like and what we can do and what we will do.
0: That's our broadcast for tonight, Boston. Thank you for tuning in. We wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next Friday.